Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me, so Rav, say hello to everyone and share your insight for the day. My insight for the day, actually, you know, I tend to think life is a journey and you keep on working on stuff, so is there new insight for today? No, I'd say keep working at it, don't quit, um, always strive to be better, always strive higher. Um, I think my, one of my favorite books is Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned in that. Don't be put off by what people say. Keep striving higher for yourself. All right, that's it. That's a good point. Now, we have a special show today in my mind. This show is, is actually incubated for quite some time. Hmm. You and I have had some significant differences about what goes on in the view of that people hold about law enforcement uh, or that law enforcement holds about people. Um, are you excited about today's show? I am looking forward to today's show. I always like um, people who couldn't possibly offer solutions. And I think your guest today does have some, he's not firmly in either camp. At least that's my understanding so far. So no, I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, we'll flesh that out. You know, we had lunch today, and there were several officers there. And you know that whenever I see police officers, I make it a point to go thank them for what they do. But I know what the inside of their lives are like, and I'm, I want to I want to see us flesh that out more today as well. Absolutely. Okay. In today's spotlight, I want to turn to injustices. Webster defines injustice this way, quote, lack of fairness or justice, an unjust act or occurrence, the quality or fact of being unjust, inequity, violation of the rights of others, unjust or unfair action or treatment, an unjust or unfair act, close quote. Well, that's a whole lot of unjust. How do we correct an injustice? Jason Van Dyke was sentenced to nearly seven years for murdering Laquan McDonald. Mr. Van Dyke was the first Chicago police officer in decades convicted of murder for an on-duty shooting. He shot Laquan 16 times in 2014. Is less than seven years imprisonment for murder really justice? Rodney King was awarded $3.8 million in damages in compensation for his beating by police officers in 1991. L.A. erupted into angry riots over the King beating and subsequent acquittal of four of the officers involved. Did the money make things right? Did the riots settle some score? Again, how do you compensate? How, how do we get true justice? Gustavo Perez Ariaga. Shot and killed Ranil Singh, a 33-year-old officer with the Newman Police Department, early on December 26, 2018. Ariaga, a 32-year-old uh, undocumented immigrant, was charged with homicide, and seven of his friends who hid him were also arrested. The county sheriff blames California sanctuary laws for the shooting. Officer Singh left behind a wife and young son. How is justice to be served in this situation? Injustices occur every day and not just in the areas of criminal justice. How do we correct them or do we? Some argue that many injustices are not possible to correct in this world and this is why the afterlife is so important. But what if you don't believe in an afterlife? Is injustice just a part and parcel of life? 
the best you can hope for is that you're not personally affected? This past weekend, I watched the Saints-Rams game. By now, everyone must know about the non-call that cost the Saints the game in all probability. Everyone knows that the failure to call a flagrant pass interference and personal foul, helmet-to-helmet hit, made it possible for the Rams to get the ball back and kick a field goal in overtime. Every football pro out there that I have heard has the odds that the Saints would have won the game had the call been made at 98 to 99% because of where the foul occurred on the field and the amount of time that was left. There are now at least two class action suits that have been filed against the NFL and the referees directly involved. I'm sorry, but for me, when I see the replay of this fragment hit, one that the Rams player himself says was intended to be an interference call, but would at least save a touchdown. And I watched the two officials who were right there watching the entire thing. I guess my suspicion, my paranoia, my something says, I have to wonder how much money they made on the game. How do you miss that call? So how do you set this right? Now, Think of the Rams players, and imagine you were a boxer in a fixed fight. You win, but discover the fight was fixed. Not your fault, but doesn't this fact contaminate your victory? The win is tarnished in the fog of controversy. How do you set that right? Injustice is a frustrating aspect of our lives, unfortunately. It would be nice if it were different. We can all work to improve matters for everyone, and we should make our voices heard when we become aware of injustice. But we must also accept that some injustices cannot be set right. That said, if we collectively ignore our responsibility, the next time we may well be on the receiving end of injustice, and there will be no voices there to make our case. My thoughts, what are yours, Ravinder? You know, you're totally correct. There are some injustices that simply cannot be set right with all the money in the world, with all the public support in the world. You know, you can't bring someone back. Um, You can't give them back their time when they've been wrongly jailed. And there are plenty of those stories. Um, I do think we all have an obligation to demand fairness though. So just because you can't fix something um, doesn't mean that you don't try. I think that the very act of trying to fix something, um, I think it brings awareness to the whole thing and it helps prevent it from happening in the future. So, I mean, yeah, there's times that you can only do the very best, but we all have an obligation whenever we see injustice anywhere to do whatever we can um, to to change it. And it isn't about fixing the past. It's about helping the future. I, I totally agree. On the other hand, I think we also need to hold context in mind and uh, be a little slower in our approach to judging what we see as injustices. Oh, absolutely. Until we have all the data, all the information, uh-huh. et cetera. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Dr. Ralph Lewis, and we discussed his work and book, Finding Purpose in a Godless World, Why We Care Even If the Universe Doesn't. Keith wrote, I like Dr. Lewis's pragmatics as you termed it, but I don't see how we can possibly find comfort or peace in the idea that this is it, We're destined to nothingness. Elizabeth wrote, I wonder what he tells a patient when they lose a child. I imagine it would be something like, well, now the child's atoms can become mixed with many other something else's. That's an interesting perspective. Richard commented, I really like this guy. Brian remarked, I'd like to see Dr. Lewis participate in the development of a protocol and audit the rigor of a remote effect experiment just to see if any experiment on this topic could meet his expectations. Then again, I have a feeling if the experiment proved remote effects, he would immediately look for the faults in the protocols and execution. You know, I actually had a conversation with Ralph about that, and 
you know, the bottom line is if we have a preconceived idea, and that is there no, is no evidence for, you know, mind at a distance, et cetera, et cetera, it is going to, for all intent and purposes, predispose how we view whatever you can call, in quotation marks, evidence that might challenge that perspective. Moving on, Bob wrote, I just wanted to send you an update on my wife's progress with stage 3 breast cancer. A couple of months ago, I purchased two audio files from you, one on building a powerful immune system and the other uh, freedom from nausea. You were also kind enough to send us your free cancer CD. My wife started chemotherapy 17 days ago. She just had her second treatment. She has had only very mild nausea for only a couple of days after each treatment and has not had any problems with eating. The best news is that the tumor in her breast and the tumor in her lymph node have shrunken dramatically. She is confident, relaxed, and doing very well. Thank you once again for the positive impact your InterTalk programs have had on my life and are now helping to give my wife the best mental and emotional approach to her cancer. Well, thank you, Bob, for your feedback, and our prayers are with you, your wife, and your loved ones. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You're going to pine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, to protect and serve how to fix American police with author, former chief, Professor Norm Stamper. His Amazon book copy states this, quote, The police in America belong to the people, not the other way around. Yet millions of Americans experience their cops as racist, brutal, and trigger-happy, an overly aggressive, militarized enemy of the people. For their part, today's officers feel they are under siege, misunderstood, unfairly criticized, and scapegoated for society's ills. Is there a fix? Today's guest believes there is, so let me tell you a little about him. Professor Stamper was a police officer for 34 years, the first 28 in San Diego, his last six as Seattle's police chief. He has a Ph.D. in leadership in human behavior and is the author of two books, Breaking Rank, a top cop's expose of the dark side of American policing, and To Protect and Serve, How to Fix Americans' Police the subject of today's show, although they are both great books, and I may well ask him questions derived from both. He is currently at work on a novel, a trilogy. He has served as an adjunct professor of San Diego State University, adjunct professor at the University of California, San Diego, and adjunct professor at the University of Washington. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Norman Harvey Samper. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. It's indeed my press, uh, pleasure. Now, I'm, not, I'm sure, certain of this one. There are many more professors than there are chiefs. Do you want me to call you professor or chief? My preference, Alden, uh, uh, would be Norm. All right. Well, okay, Norm. We like to know three things on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? To that end, tell us what you're passionate about. And when did you decide to expose the, the, the dark side, if you will, of law enforcement? Uh, I am most passionate about a theme you uh, identified earlier, and that is justice, uh, basic fairness. Uh, and I came to my uh, aha moment in police work after my rookie year, uh, when a, uh, a principled prosecutor in San Diego kind of slapped me upside the head and asked me if the United States Constitution meant anything to me. I had given him uh, an arrest report, uh, suggested that he probably wanted to dismiss a case that, we were, uh, that had been set for trial, and uh, he asked me, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, because it was and we hemmed and hawed and beat around the bush quite a bit before I got to this truth. And I said, because um, it was a bad arrest, uh, a kind of a euphemism for a false arrest. Uh, and that's when he posed that question of me. 
Uh, and from that moment on, uh, you know, having asked myself, my gosh, how did I, how did I travel down this road in my first 14 months on the job as, as a rookie cop? And uh, came to some conclusions and raised probably more questions than I answered, but uh, it, it, it really did uh, set me back on what I consider to be the, uh, the correct path. Interesting. You know, I, it's one of the things that um, every law enforcement individual I've ever known, and I spent years running lie detection examinations, um, tries to bear in mind is it's not their job to determine uh, guilt or innocence. It's, it's their job. Um, it, it, that, that's the job of the judge and the jury. Um, that's the job of prosecutors to decide. Your job is simply to enforce the law. And yet there are always those compromises where you're just, you, you, you just feel that it's not possible to serve justice and be that blindfolded. you experience that, Norm? I, I absolutely did experience it, certainly during my rookie year. Uh, and and came to the conclusion that uh, the power that I had been given, not the authority, because that gets to the sanctioned right, uh, right to order the actions of other people, but the power uh, that that uh, I assumed as a police officer had gone straight to my head. We have a term in police work called badge heavy, and uh, I certainly do confess here and now, as I've done previously, uh, that I became badge heavy. Uh, I started abusing the very people I had been hired to protect and serve. Uh, and, you know, the question is, well, why? Why in the world would I abuse the, the position? Uh, and Not to mention the people that I had been hired to protect. And, right. and the short answer is I had never felt anything like the power of a police officer. Uh, I grew up uh, in a... Uh, I guess the popular term for it would be a dysfunctional family. My father was uh, uh, brutal, both emotionally and physically, uh, and I had set out to be as different from that man as I could possibly be, and and then I came to the realization, after this little dust-up with the prosecutor in the hallway of the San Diego County Courthouse, that uh, I was more like my father than I cared to admit. And uh, that sent me on a, on a trail of, of, of research to find out uh, how my father was raised. And I learned an awful lot about that from one of his brothers, uh, my uncle, uh, and, and learned, really not to my surprise, that my father had been treated pretty much the same way he treated me. Uh, one of the uh, sources of pride in my life as, a, as an adult of advancing age uh, is that I never treated my son that way. Uh, we have a, a wonderful relationship, uh, and I'm, I'm, needless to say, pleased to say that I never uh, accused him of being worthless. I never struck him. Uh, one little pat to the butt when he was about four years old, I regret that. He doesn't remember it. Uh, but my, my deliberate uh, decision was, to make sure that I broke the cycle of violence in our family, and I'm proud to say that I did do that. Boy, can I ever identify with that, but that's another many, story. Many of us can, <laughs> and I think many many men in our society, many women in our society, uh, live with it, see it, uh, in some cases just every day for most of their lives. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. You heard today's spotlight, sir. What are your thoughts on injustice, and do you think we'll ever be able to eliminate them, or, or what you know, what sort of attitude should we have regarding that? Well, let, let me, if I may, uh, agree Please. with you that that was an unjust non-call in the Rams-Saints <laughs> game, uh, and I totally get that. But that's football, uh, and, and, and both parties, well, all parties to that, that particular non-call uh, uh, go on to live another day. And all too often in law enforcement where there is an injustice, let's say perpetrated at the hands of police, sometimes the, uh, the outcome is fatal. Uh, sometimes the outcome is incarceration, uh, un un unjustifiable incarceration. So I think we need to be 
no, my bias would be let's let's look at forms of injustice that that are not mere uh, irritations, but rather profound in their consequences. And that that's uh, that's what I took from that opening session, which I thoroughly enjoyed because I couldn't agree more. I think uh, <laughs> what were these two officials thinking? Were they daydreaming? Uh, you know, you you suggested maybe another. Um, much more uh, serious take on it, but um, I guess I would come back to the idea it's a football game. Yeah, well, and and that's good, you know. I, I, I don't know, I think because of backgrounds, we look at things, and I, I tend to look for motive, and I know you would do the same thing, so I don't mean to imply that they really, you know, were bribed or had bets or wages or something, but it sure looks like it. Uh, anyway, I just said, let me let me start this way if I can. Uh, about a year ago, my two sons and I had a vigorous discussion, huh? and it was all about black lives and blue lives and. Uh, they, they both live in Seattle. They, their students are graduated from the University of Washington. Um, they tend to see law enforcement in the most negative of lights. And, and of course, I tend to see it differently. But um, they, they pushed me. They, they wanted me to write a book and flesh out, you know, the, this whole kind of conversation we had. And it began this way. I explained to them what uh, what the life of a cop is. I mean, you know, the, some of the frustrations they deal with. We can't go into them all on the air, but, you know, vomit in your automobile or all over the front of you, spit at, cussing, rocks thrown at you, family fights you respond to, a woman being beaten by her husband, the woman turns on you, bites you, attacks you. Uh, or some of the revenue frustrations, you're out serving bench warrants on FTAs as opposed to chasing the really bad guys. And and you're doing all this for low pay. And, you know, even routine traffic stops can be just really nasty. I mean, the, the life a law enforcement officer lives with, I don't think the public generally understands Flesh that out for us, please, Norm. What is it like to just be a cop? Well, let's start with a a very basic premise that I think most people, uh, regardless of their their political orientation, regardless of their, uh, even their experiences with law enforcement, would agree that the job itself is very delicate, very demanding, and too often dangerous. So let's accept that as truth. Uh, that that uh, police work can break your heart. Uh, police work can uh, uh, can can fundamentally change your life. Whether you're on the receiving or 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 the giving end, so to speak, of law enforcement activities. So let's accept the fact that it's delicate, it's dangerous, it's demanding, uh, and often the very things you're talking about do happen to police officers. They. Pretty much everything you talked about happened to me at one point or another in my career, uh, mostly obviously as a patrol officer. But but let's accept that as fact and then ask ourselves, what are we doing to reduce the danger? What are we doing to increase job satisfaction and morale? What are we doing to impress upon our police officers that given the difficulty of the job, you still must maintain uh, your commitment to treating everyone with dignity and respect. You must still ensure that your own behavior as a police officer is lawful, is constitutional. And if you happen to, to uh, you know, to entertain uh, notions of, of prejudice of any type, you've got to figure out a way uh, not not just to suppress it, but to change it so that you do not come across in your enforcement practices or your public service uh, duties and responsibilities as racist or sexist or misogynist or brutal or heavy-handed or trigger-happy. You have
an obligation uh, to conduct yourself as, as a professional against all of these uh, uh, behaviors that, that you so aptly described. And that gets to the selection process. It gets to what we pay our cops. It gets to the uh, working conditions, their education, their training, their equipment, their supervision, uh, everything about the, the organization of American policing needs to be questioned. And from my point of view, after 34 years in the business and, and an additional 18 or 20 reflecting on those years in police work, we've got to figure out how most effectively uh, to convince our officers uh, that they must conduct themselves as professionals and be rewarded as such. So it's a major systems challenge, I think, that we face. I have zero against police officers. People say, well, my guy, you were a cop for 24 years, and, and you have such, uh, in some cases, scathing criticism. Yeah, you're right, I do. Laquan McDonald was murdered. Uh, Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina, was a victim of a cold-blooded murder at the hands of a police officer who wore a uniform very similar to one that I wore and that almost a million police officers wear today. So we, we have to, I think, call it the way we see it. We have to acknowledge that excessive force and corruption uh, sexual predation by people in uniform, and other offenses committed by police officers are real. Uh, and, and that uh, kind of tiptoeing around that reality doesn't serve uh, you know, the cause of what I would consider to be meaningful police reform. Treat cops well, pay them well, and insist that they behave uh, effectively, efficiently, and constitutionally. Amen to all of that. And, you know, when I started to do the research, and fortunately I don't have to pursue it because you wrote the book and I consider it to be definitive, um, I, I was surprised to see just how, what the statistics have to, to say about the other side. I, I mean, for example, I was shocked that, you know, on average, four police officers are arrested for felonies every single day. That, that number just amazed me. I mean, you know, it's higher than the average, than, than our population on a percentage basis. But when we get back, we have a hard break here. We'll pick it up and we'll discuss both sides now from a standpoint of how they're perceived by each other. Law enforcement and society, society towards law enforcement. We are speaking with Norm Stamper, chief of police, former chief of police of Seattle, uh, about his work and book, it is a great book to protect and serve how to fix American police. It's straight up, does not pull punches, is not biased in one way or another. I highly recommend this book. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Norm Stamper. That's S-T-A-M-P-E-R, Norm Stamper, one word, dot com. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to intertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor.
angel as a church at twilight Sentimental has a rose and moonlight My love for you will always be Confidential to me Confidential as a mother's prayer Too beautiful for other eyes to share My love for you will always be Confidential to me Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with former chief. You know, it's hard for me. I'm sorry, Norm, not to just say Chief Norm Stamper. But we're speaking with Norm Stamper about his work and book, To Protect and Serve, How to Fix American Police. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at normstamper.com. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology, as you know by now, is an avocation of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Now, your chosen music today, Norm, is Confidential by Sunny Night. Tell us, please, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? Well, it for me, it's just a, a form of pure pleasure. It evokes such memories of my uh, childhood at a time when I was, uh, uh, apropos of our comments earlier, uh, beginning to stand up uh, to my father's abuse and and uh, and trying to find my way in life. Uh, and uh, you know, it's from the mid '50s, uh, and it's. Uh, out of the doo-wop era. I mean, I love classical music. I love jazz. I love particularly what I call East Coast jazz. But uh, this one just has a special place in my heart because I think it it, it does represent a period of time when I was uh, beginning to a, a, a assert my personhood. And you're going to be somewhere between 14 or 16, according to the data on our favorite music. And it's going to be attached maybe to some pretty girl, right or oh, wrong? absolutely. I think it's probably Doris. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's pick it up where we left off. Uh, let's start off this way. There's a perceptual problem, one that began many years ago. And I think to understand the problem, we have to know how we got here. So, I mean, we argue about Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter when clearly both matter. But, but Chief, this, this all started a long time ago. To that end, how did we get here? We got here, uh, I'm convinced, from, from my studies uh, and, and from the sort of expert observations of so many researchers over the years, over the decades, uh, police today are an extension. One might say they, they operate on a, on a direct line from the days of the slave patrol. Uh, and a lot of white cops do not want to hear that. There's, they, they will say to you, as they've said to me, uh, that, that's just crazy. That's just nonsense. Uh, my daddy and my daddy's daddy and my daddy's daddy's daddy, uh, and go back as far as you want, never owned slaves. How can you uh, saddle us or this institution of American policing uh, with that kind of baggage? Uh, and for many African Americans, conversations over the dinner table, generation after generation after generation, have been sort of depressingly predictable. Uh, talking about uh, unlawful search and seizure, stop and frisk, excessive force, and, of course, the conversations about controversial police shootings from Michael Brown in in Ferguson to, once again, Laquan McDonald or or many, many others. And for, for white families around the dinner table, that's not the conversation. Uh, there's never been a sort of a golden age of policing where the old cop on the beat with whom you had this wonderful, trusting relationship 
uh, within the black community. There are clearly exceptions, and I footnote everything I have to say with those exceptions are important and, and positive relations and, and, uh, and good feelings between white cops and black citizens need to be celebrated and appreciated. But for too many uh, African Americans in this country and others of color, and for sexual minorities and, and anyone who's different, uh, who's had an unpleasant experience or had unpleasant experiences passed along to them from one generation to the next, their reality is different. Uh, you mentioned perception, and, and uh, it, of course it goes without saying that uh, the consequences of perception are always real. Regardless of, of, of the facts, the, the, the consequences of my perception and yours are always real. So I think if we could, in law enforcement, uh, accept the fact that we have a large segment of our community uh, that, that does not see it the way the average middle-class white American family sees it, uh, and, and just accept that that's a truth for them and begin to go to work on altering the perceptions. And I, and I, I lay out a, a prescription. It's just it's a, my, my, my agenda for, for police reform is rather radical. It, it calls for fundamental reform in the institution, uh, sort of based on my belief that tweaking it and, and tinkering with the system has not worked, never has worked, and, and is very unlikely to work in the future, so that what's needed is really profound change. And, 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 and I, I, I mean, I think you make that case very, very well in your book. You have triggered a couple of thoughts in my mind, though, and I, I'm, I kind of want to go there. Uh, you know, many of our law enforcement officers today, someone in their family was in law enforcement, and that's what propelled them to law enforcement. And if you go back and you think, well, if you had an officer today who was 30 or 40 years old and, and say his father was a law enforcement officer, well, then that probably means that they were law enforcement officers in the 30s, the 40s, the, even the 50s. And they would have used the N word as just a part of culture and, and, and on and on. And all of that creates a kind of implicit bias that whether we want to recognize it or not, we carry and bring forward with us. And, and that, that is part of the whole problem. And did I get that right? I think you did. Whenever you hear, uh, you know, a police officer today say something like, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Uh, that's the point at which I say to myself, oh, yes, you do. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, it may be that you are complicit in, 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 uh, in systematic racism. You may be telling yourself, I never use the N-word. I, I just don't, I don't see color is another thing you hear often. I say, why is it that you don't see color? I certainly see color. I see my whiteness. I see another's blackness or brownness. I see differences, and instead of chalking them up to deficits, I see them as as um, really a condition that we need to celebrate in this country. We are multicultural. We are pluralistic. We are a democracy. And it seems to me that appreciating differences between and among us it is a way of celebrating those differences and 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 moving towards something resembling an authentic partnership between, for example, a white cop and a black community. Uh, right. But it does require a stretch for for many, I think, uh, in, in law enforcement. And, and I've never known a law enforcement officer that didn't profile, that wasn't inclined to profile, that didn't sure. look at his environment and assess threat. Um, and and there's just no way to avoid that in law enforcement, is there, Chief? I, I, I think not only is there no way to avoid that, I think it, it does challenge us to recognize, uh, we use that term profile, I think, in a lot of ways, but, but the sort of, uh, you know, customary uh, definition or acceptance of, of a particular definition is that we're, we're engaging in unlawful. Uh, 
discrimination. Uh, mm-hmm. We're stopping people simply because they're black or because they're young or because of this, that, or the other uh, sort of status uh, or, or condition uh, that, that we're able to see, that we observe. But it becomes, I think, critical for police officers to recognize that one, uh, and this is something that just doesn't get talked about nearly enough, in, in, in my view, that if we see differences and we're ignorant of, uh, uh, about those differences, we're ignorant of the cultural implications, we become uh, frightened. And I think uh, I've said this before in both of my books. I've said it to police officers, generally acknowledged by police officers to be true, not all police officers, and that is if we come across in our daily activities an African-American man, a big man, a dark African-American man, we're more likely to be afraid of that person than we are a white person under those same circumstances. Um, That kind of uh, primitive fear uh, really results in, in enormous problems for the community police relationship, of course, but also for that specific interaction. So I think the darker an, a, a man is, the bigger a man is, the greater the fear on the part of police officers. Now, here's where we get into real interesting conversations with cops, and I'll say, you know, I can talk about that uh, in, in the locker room. I can talk about that uh, you know, in, in a bar or a tavern, but I'm not going to talk about that in my official world. I'm just not going to because, number one, I'm not afraid. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, it, it may in fact be an unconscious fear, but I think it's vital that we recognize that too often police officers see differences and impute, you know, just uh, not, not impute, but they experience fear in the face of those Right. And, and, and I want to explore that. But I, you have me thinking about another level of fear. I, I want to switch the channel a bit and think of the opposite side. Um, let's take James Comey example. In his book, uh, Higher Loyalty, he implies very directly that uh, some of the black crime... Uh, in America that is escalating in in areas are due to the fact that law enforcement is reluctant, that's a good word, fearful of going into these areas because, well, that might be the next uh, scene of something that goes down that costs them their career, involves a shooting, puts them in the press, they're hated by everybody, you know, it could be, and so law enforcement is withdrawing some of the support that they might otherwise provide, say, in a white community. Do you see that as something that's actually occurring in our society today in some areas? I do, and I, I, I really appreciate the qualifier you added there at the last, and that is in some areas, in some police officers, some jurisdictions. Uh, I don't think there's any question about it. Comey uh, and others have referred to it as the Ferguson effect. Right. Uh, that one incident uh, that got so much attention, uh, and I think for obvious reasons, uh, has produced fear in the minds and hearts of some police officers such that they start engaging in what's called de-policing. So they, they see something suspicious, they don't intervene. They see somebody getting hurt. They maybe drive the other way. They make a U-turn when at 3 o'clock in the morning they should be driving down that alley and, and confronting suspicious activity. So I think that's a reality. To deny it, I, I, I think, is uh, foolish. Uh, at the same time, I think we need to recognize how it is that that phenomenon has developed. Uh, but I've heard from police officers who say, you think I'm going to risk my life or, or my job, my career, uh, by, by confronting this individual. Well, police officers are hired to protect and serve. The better the relationship they have with the community, the less fear they experience, the more confidence and maturity that they bring to the job, the greater the possibility that they'll be able to do all aspects of the work, in- including those aspects that, you know, services that people don't want. 
uh, like getting a traffic citation for reckless driving or or being arrested for a criminal offense. So I I come full circle when I get into that argument uh, with police officers. I concede that that there is a Ferguson effect, and I also believe that it's not nearly uh, of the magnitude that most uh, uh, critics uh, I think would argue. And let me look at yet another angle. <clears throat> That's the role of society. Society gen- generally looks at uh, these events uh, like a spectator would uh, at a ball game. And, and so we have we have two things, in my view, that go on. And, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I surely want you to correct me if you see it differently. But first, we have the press rushing in and jumping to conclusions. And then we have the infamous uh, examples like, hands up, don't shoot. And, and and that fabrication gets spread around all over the news, and pretty quick we have congressmen standing up, hands up, don't. And, and, you know, this is something that just never happened. The public sees this, and they begin to become involved. It stirs them up, and even when it's corrected or they find out it's way past, it's too late to make that correction. And then we have this other side of the public, the public that will not get involved. They didn't see anything. Uh, they're not going to talk to you. They're, you know, they're going to turn their backs on you. They weren't there. Um, they're not going to cooperate in any way. They're not going to watch out for their neighbor. Uh, their neighbors burglarized in broad daylight, and they were home. But, you know, hey, that's none of their business. How do we correct that if I've got this right, Chief? I think... Um you know, certainly by degrees, you have all of it right. Uh, and you won't find me disagreeing with anything you said. That phenomenon, I, I think, is present. It's been around for a long, long time. Uh, it's a multidimensional phenomenon. But let's assume this. Let's assume that I'm a, an 18-year-old African-American who's been proned out, uh, which is to say uh, forced to the asphalt uh, by a police officer who thinks that I'd be be a danger to him, when in fact I'm not, when I have not engaged even in suspicious activity, uh, much less criminal activity. Uh, and I have that experience, and then I have another similar experience, and a friend has a similar experience. We reach a point where it's impossible for us to trust the police. So let's assume that uh, something does happen in my neighborhood, and I know that what's happening is wrong, and I believe that somebody should should help, that we have a, a victim of, let's say, a violent crime here. Uh, and maybe I know who did it. Uh, but if I don't, I'll make you the police officer, Eldon. If I don't trust you, what are the odds that I'm going to come to you with my information, that, that I'm going to be a good witness? Um, <laughs> they're, they're next to nil. So right. I, I think we, we, once again, if we want to look at the big picture, have to understand why there is so, mis, so much mistrust of law enforcement in our communities and why there's such great polarization. I, I can't go a, a whole hour without saying we've got a man in the White House who has urged police officers to commit crimes. We've had, we have a man who has encouraged police officers uh, to, to, to hit people in the face to not right. be too kind or too gentle. Uh, this, this is the leader of our country making these statements. So the polarization grows deeper and deeper. That rift, that divide between community and police uh, grows, grows ever wider. And I think what's needed, what's so essential now, is for uh, cooler minds to prevail, for people to look at how we bridge gaps, not, not uh, create them. And I'm convinced, you know, I've got an eight-item agenda, as I said earlier, and without getting into a whole lot of detail, I would just say three things. One, I think we need to end the drug war. And we say, what's that got to do with police-community relations? And the answer is a ton. Uh, maybe that's for another time and place. But we need to end the drug war. We need to set national standards for stop-and-frisk, search-and-seizure, use of force. National standards. Licensed police officers, based on their ability to meet those standards, certify agencies 
on their ability to meet those standards, and then decertify and yank licenses of agencies or individuals who can't or won't play by the rules. And those rules are found in the Constitution. Then finally, we need to create a, an authentic definition of community policing. And that does, in fact, put the community in the driver's seat on police policies and procedures, certainly on police oversight. I could, but won't go on and on. I think that, that these uh, Blue Ribbon Commissions and task forces and the like that have been created to study the police-community relationship have come up with great ideas, uh, but they're, they're not being implemented. And the reason they're not, I'm convinced, is that the solution lies in a structural arena, not, not cosmetic public relations versions of improving community police relations. Uh, in my speech right there. Chief, I'm going to have to cut you off. We're out of time. I'm going to, yeah, all of you out there, go get a copy of this book, To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. The more you know about it, the more involved you are in it, the better we all are in improving the quality of our lives and the community we live in. I want to thank you for your work. Uh, Chief, I'm sorry. I, I just got Chief stuck in my head. Chief is just fine, Eldon. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, Norm. And and, and I really personally appreciate uh, everything you have to say and the book you've written. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next time, same time, same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Until then, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.